Well, so far in our studies in Romans, we've seen that this is one of the letters that has a very clear and definite structure. Chapters 1 to 8 are uh, a very uh, academic, almost, exposition of the Gospel. And there's a lot of connections between those chapters and what uh, follows on in, in Romans, as if Paul is building all the practical stuff that comes, uh, particularly from chapter 12 onwards, on the basis of the, the implications of the gospel that you and I have also believed, that it's not just a case of having just accepted uh, a set of theology and signed up to it by baptism, that in fact, not at all, we are now in the status of being in Christ, and that God looks at us as if we are without sin, by his grace. And Paul, of course, was writing not to people he wanted to convert, but to people who had already been baptized, people like you and me. And he wanted to try to help them to see the, the wonderful implications of what they had already believed. So then 1 to 8 is the pure, if you like, academic exposition of the gospel. And then from chapter 12 onwards, you've got these totally practical exhortations. But 9 to 11 is at the center of the, the structure of the letter, and it's all about Israel. And I think that this section from chapters 9 to 11 of Romans is there to sort of present Israel as the parade example of God's grace. And that is, of course, in, in line with what we've, we've just been reading in, in chapters 1 to 8, that we are saved not by works, but by, but by grace. And one of the implications that comes out of our having believed and our having been persuaded that we now will live forever in God's kingdom in the future and that we are now declared right as we stand even now at the judgment seat of God. One of the implications of that is that we are to share that gospel, that good news with others, particularly, I think, with, with Israel. So then... He talks in verse 8 about the word of faith which we preach. And what does this mean, the word of faith? I understand that the word of the gospel is what leads people to believe in the wonderful things that he's spoken about in chapters 1 to 8, and that a person cannot believe without hearing that gospel. This is going to uh, make the point later on in, in Romans, uh, Romans 10 that they cannot hear without uh, a preacher. So then, the word of faith which we preach is the word which gives other people faith. And in John 17:20, the Lord Jesus foresaw that there would be those who would believe on him through their word. So then, faith to some degree is, to some extent, or dare I say percentage, some element in the final algorithm of, of faith, is that other people have preached to us. Now, of course, God could save who he wishes, as he wishes. He could just zap people with the knowledge of, of his salvation. He could act as he wishes, but he chooses, he prefers to work through the mechanism of human preaching. In some of the parables of Jesus, we get the impression that he has now gone away into a far country, and that he has delegated the running of the household to us. And he has given all his wealth to us. And therefore he has, in a sense, taken the risk of delegation. That how far it prospers is actually in our hands. 
And that is a, a really serious thought, because we may think, and I think we all do think at times, that, well, okay, so I was shy to make the witness I should have made to that guy, but okay, that's my failure, but surely God will raise up somebody else, some other way or channel for that person to, to come to him, if that's God's will. We catch ourselves thinking that very often. But I am not so sure that that is the case. It seems to me that God has delegated that work to us. And it's not that he's far away from us and he's not going to rush in and help us kind of thing, but it, there is this element of those parables that talk about him having gone, uh, the Lord having gone to the far country and left the work in our hands to be reviewed when he returns. And so if the word that we preach is a word of faith, a word that brings faith in others, if we don't do that, then maybe they will never hear the gospel in any other way, because it was you and I who were intended to do it, and we messed up. Now, I've said before, and I'll raise it again in this context, it's just a, um, it's a kind of speculation, maybe I shouldn't share it, because it's not really well thought out, but it is a thought that, that has drifted through my mind when I have considered, as I'm sure you have too, the, the problem of those who have not heard. The uh, verses throughout the New Testament that seem to speak about God's intention to save all people, and yet the simple fact that many people have not heard. And why is that? Well, it could be, or one, one window onto it, one part of the answer might be, and I stress that word, and I, I'll leave this with you for your reflection, uh, it, it might be that we as the body of Christ, all down the years, like right from the first century onwards, have not taken that message as we should have done. You know, Jesus gave the disciples, for example, all power to, to go forward and take the message to all the world, but they just insisted on going to the Jews, and he, through providential work in their lives, had to push them through persecution, through visions to, to, to Peter of the unclean animals, he had to push them to sort of see the basic obvious implication of what he had said. Go and take the gospel to all of creation, or go and do it. Stop hanging up, getting hung up on your church politics about uh, we can only preach to Jews, and then the Jewish brethren said, look here, that's enough, you've got to put some hoops up for the Gentiles to get through. Uh, all this sort of church politics came in and, and stopped really what could have happened. Paul talks in Romans 15, verse 21, about his need to take the gospel to those who have not heard. And he talks there in Romans 15 about his plans to, to take the gospel in, into Spain. And I think that he, he has that in mind. Um, when, when he's uh, talking here about uh, us being a witness. Let's go on in verse 18. He, he says, but have they not heard? Did they not hear? Yes, they have, truly. And then he quotes from Psalm 19, Their sound went out into all the earth, their words unto the ends of the world. Now, that psalm is talking about the, uh, the witness of, of the stars and the, uh, the heavenly bodies, uh, sort of sh shedding light on, on earth. And yet Paul interprets that as meaning that the gospel has gone into all the world, or certainly gone to, to all Israel. 
And yet he says in Romans 15:21 that he must take the gospel to those who have not heard. But here he says, well, everyone has heard, because Psalm 19 says that their sound went out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And yet he says he wants to go to the end of the world, as he understood his world, that is to Spain, to the very limit of the Roman Empire, to take the gospel to those who have not heard. Now, putting those passages together, this verse 18 with 1521, it seems to me that he's saying, yes, that was God's uh, potential, that that is God's ideal, and that is what was prophesied that we should do. But therefore, if that is the case, and in God's eyes it's as good as if it's happened, we better go out and actually do it. Now, of course, he, he says in verse 14, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? This is, of course, putting in so many words what I have been saying, that people are not just going to be zapped into God's kingdom. There is God's preferred mechanism to work through you and I. And so that means that whenever you make the effort to take this seriously, you will find God blessing you. God will empower you. And that's what I think the Great Commission is saying, that you will be empowered. Okay, they had miracles backing up their witness in the first century that, that we don't have today. But the point is, the essence is, that God will work with you. You put your bit of money or your effort or your time into something for the gospel and God is right there behind you to bless what you're trying to do you remember the Ethiopian eunuch how can I understand when Philip says to him do you understand what you're reading he says how can I understand unless somebody should guide me that's Acts 8.31 and it's possible that uh, here Paul is here in chapter 10 verse 14 of Romans it's possible he's alluding to that when he says how should they believe in him of whom they have not heard and how should they hear without a preacher as if he's saying that we are all actually in Philip's position now and there's a few other connections between uh, that account there in Acts 8 and uh, what we have what we have here for example uh, here in Romans 10 verse 9 he talks about uh, confessing with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead that's Acts 8.37 that's exactly what Philip basically says to the Ethiopian eunuch so then God is in that sense in need of man he has set it up so that that's how it is not ultimately, ultimately that it had to be that way but the way that he chooses some shall I say degree of self-limitation in the way that he works with us, and really that's how it has to be. You, you imagine a, a, a super wealthy, super powerful man who falls in love with some illiterate peasant girl from a backward society in, uh, I don't know, some little island in, uh, let's say, Indonesia or whatever it might be, in the Philippines or whatever. If he's going to have a working relationship with him, if, uh, with, with her, if, if that is going to be uh, the real fruit of love between them, he is going to have to think himself into her situation and in a sense limit himself and that is on a cosmic scale what God has done with us now going on there 
he says in verse uh, 15 that all this is prophesied as it is written how beautiful are the feet of them just note that how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things now he's quoting there from two places in the Old Testament from Isaiah 52 verse 7 and from Nahum 1.15 but there it is said and certainly in the original uh, Hebrew there how beautiful are the feet of him in the singular and this is just slightly changed to them and Paul has done the same in Romans 4 when he talks about David and he quotes words of David where he talks David's talking about himself and he says no David there saved by pure grace is actually all of us and he changes it slightly to them blessed is the man blessed is any man to whom iniquity is not counted Uh, and so he's doing the same here a prophecy about the Lord Jesus about Messiah is subtly changed into the plural and he does that because he wants to bring out the point that in our witness for Christ we are him to this world Jesus has no other body or witness in this world apart from you and me and you got the same in in Acts 13 where Paul justifies his own ministry by saying I have to preach to the Gentiles because it's written there in the prophets that I have set you and he's talking about himself as a light to the Gentiles but the, the prophecy is about Jesus and he says no this applies to us that is why we are preaching to the Gentiles And so you really see that, without any, any question, we are him to this world. We are without question to realize that we are a special manifestation of Jesus. Let's face it, people don't read their Bibles. People don't see Jesus. They're living secular lives. And yet they look at us and they see us. And in us they are to see him. Now, also, it's worth just paying attention to the context of those passages. Those passages in Isaiah 52 and Nahum 1, especially the Nahum passage, is in the context of Israel having sinned and facing judgment. In Nahum's case, at the hands of the Assyrians. And the enemy is approaching. But then there are these beautiful feet bringing good news. And that good news was the good news that, look, if you repent even at the last minute, that judgment will not come. And that is exactly the situation uh, that Paul was preaching in in the run-up to AD 70. And it is exactly our situation today, that this is 1159, but there is a way out even now. And the urgency, particularly in the Nahum passage, that you really can avoid this great, uh, terrible invasion and judgment that is to come upon you. You really can, if you repent now. You see, that, that is why I said that it all connects with Romans 1-8, to which is full of judgment language, that man stands in the dock before God's judgment and is, of course, condemned. And yet the good news is that that sentence can not only be lifted, but you can be declared right or justified. 
and not not just to get out of the whole thing by the skin of your teeth, but be declared right. Although judgment should, by rights, come upon you. And this is, I think, what Paul is saying here, that, by, by quoting from those passages. So he, he goes uh, on in, in chapter 11 to, to talk about Israel in particular and how they have rejected the gospel and yet by grace it is God's plan to save Israel. Now that plan to save Israel by grace is again right in there with uh, what he's been saying in Romans 1-8 to that it is humanly impossible that we who are sinners and were rebellious should be declared right. But this is God's grace that we are. And so in verse 1 he says, Has God cast away his people? God forbid. Or the RV says, Did God cast off his people? God forbid. Well, of course in the Old Testament there are passages which say that, in those very words, that God has cast off Israel. Zechariah 10.6, 2 Kings 21.14, especially in the, in the RV, uh, are, are very clear examples. That, for example, in the Zechariah 10.6 passage, uh, the, the, uh, the rod is broken to show that God has broken his covenant with, with Israel, that it's over. And yet, because of a righteous remnant, Israel has not become like Sodom, as he says in Romans 9.29, even though Ezekiel 16 and other passages liken Jerusalem to Sodom. But by grace, she's not become like Sodom. She's not going to be judged like Sodom because of this remnant, this remnant of grace that he talks about, verse 5. And he talks about the 7,000 which there were in, in Israel in the time of Elijah, which Elijah didn't really want to perceive. And I wonder, and again it's me wondering here, but I wonder if there were not 7,000 Jews who believed in the first century. In uh, Acts 4 verse 4, uh, the AV I think has got it wrong here, uh, the number of the men that believed, and the context there is preaching to, to Jews, the number of the men or those that believed had come to be about 5,000. So then, if there were 5,000 then, I would say by Paul's time there might have been 7,000. So you can see the exact relevance of it. And so it seems that because of a minority who have believed within Israel, God has not cast them off as he said he would. Although God has said in the Old Testament that he has cast off his people. Hosea, again, is, is very clear on this. Yet, because of a righteous minority who have accepted Christ amongst the Jews, he has not. Now that is really what he's been saying earlier in, in Romans, where he talks about Adam and Jesus, and he says that in the same way as one man's sin, Adam's sin, brought us all into that status of condemnation, so the righteousness of just one, Jesus, can bring us all to, to salvation. Now, that, that, that is, uh, as I say, continuing this, this theme that all Israel will be saved because of a righteous remnant, even though 
the uh, the right wing of right wing Jews, that is Elijah, didn't recognise that seven thousand. He thought he was the only one left. Uh, so it, it seems likewise it is uh, with uh, certainly Orthodox Judaism that the remnant of believers is of course not not recognised as uh, as being uh, being kosher exactly. And yet. This is grace. This is the salvation by grace which God has very clearly in mind. And he goes on, Paul goes on here in in verse 19 to talk about this this business of grafting uh, broken off branches into 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 the olive. Now it's been pointed out by those miserable critics that that appears to be a horticultural blunder. If you cut off a branch in the way he's talking about here, branches that were broken off because they didn't bring forth fruit, well they don't bring forth fruit because they're dead and so they're cut off and that's it. But then he says they are grafted in and then they sort of become alive. But it's a horticultural blunder because a dead branch can't get life by being tied in or grafted in to to a living tree, not if it's already dead. And yet he says in verse 15 that this is rather like the receiving of life from the dead. Something's wrong here. I don't claim to be a gardener, but I have seen people here in this country of Latvia um, doing this grafting in uh, and uh, they typically do it with roses because some roses uh, the pretty roses basically uh, die as soon as there's a frost and there are other roses that aren't so pretty that can survive well into the, the time of frost and so the the thing is to, to cut off uh, a, a pretty part of the pretty rose uh, and immediately, and that's the point, immediately uh, graft it in to the, the more hardy rose so that you still get pretty roses uh, flowering and growing, etc., uh, during time of frost. But you cannot do that. You cannot do that. So I'm informed by a number of old grannies, who, dear friends of mine, who, who, who do this kind of thing. Uh, you cannot do that if, if that branch, or if you like, that twig as they're using with, with roses, um, is dead you cannot get you can't put life into the dead you've got to do it immediately while it's still as it were alive and then it can pull the sap out of the uh, the uh, not so pretty rose that, that is more hardy and that is still uh, still able to, to survive in the frost so then <clears throat> why this apparent blunder well you could say ah yeah well it's, you can't take it to exactly and he's just sort of making a bit of a picture, but um, a word picture, but I don't think so. I would say that again he has in mind grace. And the whole idea of getting life from the dead, I mean, this is, this is Romans 4. I, I keep saying it all connects uh, thematically with what's gone before in the letter. Of the dead body of Abraham, he was impotent is the implication, and the dead womb of of Sarah being used by God to come alive again uh, and and to produce Isaac who would then uh, lead on to to Jesus so it is all of grace and you know he's using horticultural metaphor and allusion, he's using pure theology there and earlier on in Romans, he's using every method that he can, he's using the example of 
of Israel to try to persuade us of what he's been saying there earlier on in Romans, that we who are sinners who should be condemned, we who are dead to sin, are made alive. This is again is Romans 6, that the impossible happens. That we who stand in the dark before God's judgment, with our own sins testifying against us, who right now are before judgment, are declared right by an amazing grace. And so I said earlier that our response to that grace is to witness, to share it with others. It's not that you have to do anything to get the grace. You can't do anything. That's our point. You are given it. It says in verse 30 of Romans 11, You were disobedient, you did not believe, but now you have obtained mercy. Even so, have these also not believed, that's the Jews, that through your mercy they also may now obtain mercy. Now, the mercy that will bring, in this case, Jewish people to, uh, to God is our preaching to them. I don't think it's given money to, to Jewish welfare. I don't think it's knitting clothes for the Jews as the, uh, the church of my youth you, you used to do. It seems ad infinitum. Um, on the idea that you know, you'll get blessed if you bless Israel. I, I don't uh, see that. As my dad used to say, <laughs> I'm a Jew, so lend me 20 quid and see if you get 40 back. Uh, I, I don't see that at all. Um, what I see here is him saying, You've been given grace, mercy. So show that to Israel by witnessing to them. And of course, Paul was a great example of this. So our response to having received grace is to, by grace, take that message out into the Gentile world. So, and uh, into the Gentile world here, specifically he's talking about to, to the Jews. This is the response to grace. If you really capture in your mind, even for a moment, the wonder of it all, that we are declared right, and that we will live forever, for sure, by God's grace. Okay, we don't know what may happen tomorrow, but, but we can say that right now, if Jesus comes back now, I will, for sure, be saved, though I should not be, but I have been justified, I have been declared right. And your response to that grace is to show it to others.